Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of Chicago's Legal Latte. Jim Mitchell with you as uh, we uh, continue our ongoing conversations on legal matters with the folks from Lavelle Law Limited. And today we are joined, first of all, by uh, Ted McGinn, who has been with us a number of times. He is the managing partner at Lavelle Law. And for the first time, we welcome Megan Hartnett, an associate with the firm. Today we're going to talk about shareholder agreements So, Ted. Megan, first of all, thank you both for being here today. Thanks for having me in here, Jim. It's always fun uh, to do these uh, podcasts, video casts. I always enjoy it, but glad to be here. Yeah. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Look forward to it. Great conversation today. I, I mentioned shareholder agreements. When we talk about um, some of the issues that businesses can get in long term, I think we'll find that this might be something that helps prevent that later if you do it right at the beginning. But before we talk about that, maybe just give us a little overview of what we mean when we say a shareholder agreement. Sure. So this is in the context of a formation of a business. Now, kind of beyond the scope of today's podcast, it's always a good idea to use a corporation or perhaps a limited liability company to insulate yourself from the claims of the business. That's the limited liability concept. So that's that's really what this context comes into. Mm -hmm. And the shareholder agreement is a document that it's a you know it's an agreement between the owners as to how they will deal with a certain number of actions or events that will undoubtedly come their way at some point during the life of the business. Now it's interesting. You, I, I think I heard you say that, that it's something that they should do. Is is a shareholder requirement? Is a uh, agreement a requirement, or as you say, just a good good operating practice? Yeah, for corporations, a shareholder agreement is not required. It's not something that the Business Corporation Act requires you to have. Uh, however, for a number of reasons, we recommend that they they get one. They they okay. you know it costs some money, mm -hmm. but the way I look at it, you can spend a little bit money, a little bit amount of money up front to get a good agreement in place. If you don't do that, you are in the risk of having to spend a great deal more amount of money. In, in connection with litigation that may arise with a dispute, a business dispute between the owners of the corporation. So spend a, lot, a bit of money up front or spend a lot later. It's up to, it's up to the owners. <laughs> well, Megan, take us through a little bit and to start at the high level, we'll drill down as we talk in the next quarter hour. When we talk about a shareholder agreement and some of the things Ted mentioned, what, you know, what are some of the key components? What are the nuts and bolts that really should be covered in this type of agreement? Yeah, and as Ted kind of mentioned, a shareholder agreement is a good kind of guideline for the company. So what would you want guidelines surrounding? So, you know, you can identify the shareholders themselves. Um, you can identify who will run the company. You know, maybe there's a board of directors, um, how many persons you want on that board. Um, you can identify, you know, kind of the procedures for shareholder meetings, um, whether or not you want the shares to be transferred um, or sold. Um, and who those shares can be transferred or sold to. Um, also importantly, it's helpful to kind of identify a formula to put a price tag on those shares, right? Because if you're not a publicly traded company, sometimes it's kind of difficult to to value those. Okay. And and it's interesting, we're using the word shareholder. And, and as you described there, Megan, there, it sounds like a group of people who are responsible for the company are they the true owners and and so when you say a shareholder agreement are these the people who have a stake in in running whatever this entity is exactly yeah yeah okay. they will have the equity interest in the company so is this an agreement then that each of those people must uh sign and adhere to it's it's not someone one person saying this is what it's going to be they, they all agree to this going in 
Yes, yeah, it should be signed by all shareholders, you know, in the event they create a shareholder agreement, as Ted mentioned, you know, it's not required. Um, but then you yeah, can also- Yeah, it, it, it could get tricky. Yeah, if, if one shareholder doesn't sign the agreement, a question that's presented a lot of times, well, is this agreement enforceable? Well, certainly it's not enforceable against that shareholder who did not sign. Mm -hmm. uh, and we would always advise you, you really to have a really good agreement. You want everybody to be a signatory to that agreement. But if you have one person that refuses to sign, you, you could probably do an agreement with those that want to, but it gets a little bit cumbersome because then you have this other party over there who's not a party to that agreement. So, so, so generally speaking, you want all the shareholders to sign the agreement. Okay. And you, you've described in general, as I asked, you know, for some of the basic principles, how, uh, how detailed does this get? I assume this doesn't necessarily reflect on how the company operates and, and the things that go on day to day, but this is, basically issues around ownership. Maybe can you give us an example of two, uh, you know, in detail of what would be covered here and how it would be handled? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, as Megan mentioned, you know, one of the issues you get in the transferability, you know, um, essentially when people come together to form a business, they know and trust each other. They're comfortable with one another. And, you know, these shares of stock, it's personal property. And what that means is each person has the right to, transfer those shares, give them away to whoever they want. Uh, that's the general rule, but you can restrict that through the use of a shareholder agreement and you can put a restriction on transferability. Uh, typically you have a right of first refusal is, is something that you'd commonly see there. Um, other issues that come up, what happens in the event of the death of mm -hmm. one of the shareholders? Where do, where do their shares go? And as Megan uh, mentioned, you know, in the event of a death, if you have a, pro a provision in the agreement, maybe uh, an option for the company to buy those shares from the estate. The next question is, what are the, what's the price for those shares? And that's where you, it's a good idea to have some sort of formula or maybe a provision that would require hiring an, a, an appraiser to come in and value the company to determine what a fair price would be. Uh, but the key is you've got a, kind of a roadmap there so the parties know how we're going to deal with this particular issue. Is it likely that uh, a shareholder agreement might place limits then on what people can do with their shares, whether it's while they're living, if they choose to leave the company or passing them on, if, if they die to say, you know, if, if either of those happen, you cannot do the following, or is it just purely these are what you can do? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, the agreement can be as comprehensive or as short as the parties want. But if the parties is interested, if, if they want to deal with this transferability issue in a thorough way, uh, you, you, you could have language in there. In the event of uh, an employee shareholder who terminates their employment relationship, maybe they quit, maybe they resign. Uh, I've seen agreements that have provisions that upon you know, resignation by one of the shareholder's employees, then that triggers a right for the company to buy those shares back from that departing shareholder. And again, you have that same sort of dilemma, what is a fair price? Mm -hmm. and, and an agreement is a good place to have some sort of mechanism to determine how that price is going to be determined. And if, uh, we, obviously, we've talked to many of your colleagues about estate planning issues, and we've talked about business succession. Um, would shares be transferable in death? Could they leave them to heirs? Or is that um, something that wouldn't be uh, acceptable? Yeah, they, they certainly can. And oftentimes, you know, we kind of suggest that you do so through a trust. 
um, and then you don't have to probate that asset. Um, so you can certainly leave your interest in, in your shares in the company um, to your family members. We're talking with uh, Ted McGinn today and, and uh, Megan Hartnett of Lavelle Law. We're uh, kind of diving in a little bit to shareholder agreements, one of the uh, really basic principles as we've learned about uh, establishing a business and preventing issues further down the line. And whenever you visit LavelleLaw.com, you'll find articles, podcasts, uh, videos on this and many other topics. And uh, this is one I know many business owners may want to dive into a little bit. Um, Ted, you mentioned valuing the shares. I know that every company is going to have a certain capital structure that's going to change over time. Um, tell me a little bit about you know how that gets addressed, if at all, in, in a shareholder agreement. Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's well it, it's important to have a document that sets forth you know who owns what, how many shares is owned by this and you know each shareholder. But then also the capital structure, what is each shareholder required to do in order to earn their shares of stock? Now, commonly, it's going to be you're going to put in a certain amount of money. In exchange for that money, you get so many shares of stock. That's that's usually pretty straightforward. Sometimes, though, you may have an agreement of the parties where maybe one of the shareholders doesn't necessarily have the cash to put in, but they maybe they want to work for the company, the so-called sweat equity. So they want to put forth services to earn their shares of stock. Now, that's great, and you can do that, but I think it's important for that agreement to define you know, how much services is required in order for that shareholder to be deemed to have earned their shares of stock. Are they going to work for free forever? Are they going to work for free for the next three months? Um, that, that should be set forth in the agreement so the parties all know when those shares have been earned by that shareholder who is uh, bringing in the sweat equity. And then the other issue that comes up is, uh, you know, when the company starts operating from time to time, there may be some cash flow issues, cash, short in cash. And, uh, you know, one of the owners may need to put money into the company in order to make ends meet. So mm -hmm. the question that's presented there is how do you deal with that additional influx of cash? Is that going to be another uh, capital contribution for shares of stock? Well, if that's the case, when all of a sudden the, the, the ownership of the shares is going to be adjusted, it's going to change because someone put in more money and now they should get more shares. Another way to deal with it, though, instead of a capital contribution for equity, you could characterize that additional amount that's put in as a shareholder loan. But if that's the case, then the company has an obligation to pay that loan back. So, But the point being, you want to have an agreement in place in the shareholder agreement that sets forth how that capital structure is going to be uh, handled both from the very beginning and then throughout the day-to-day uh, -day operations of the company. And uh, either of you who, again, I know you both do this, um, question comes to mind for me when we're talking about the shares that particular individuals own, I assume, first of all, it's not always going to be equal among the various shareholders. Um, does this simply describe the ownership value or is there, does this also describe for lack of a better term, voting rights on issues that, you know, in terms of the company is going to expand or purchase another entity or whatever. Yeah. Th does that align with the shares owned? Yeah, I think the shareholder agreement is, is is important to look into as far as the how decisions are going to be made for the company. So without a shareholder agreement, it's just one share per vote. And those who have the most shares are going to be in control of the company, which makes you know perfect common sense. However, if you're in that situation where you're a minority shareholder, I own less than 50%, I don't have control. 
And if, if I'm not careful, if I'm not in that situation and I, I'm a minority shareholder, there could be potential for abuse, okay? If that person that has a majority shares, they could start running the company, controlling the company, and I may not be able to stop it from happening. So a shareholder agreement is a good way to protect those minority shareholders. And the way you would do that is that you would set forth a, a provision in the agreement that would require some sort of supermajority vote for certain critical decisions that, uh, that are going to be made by the company. And that, that would almost essentially give that minority shareholder a veto power on these certain major decisions. And and I was asking earlier about things that uh, you put things in here that you can do or can't do. I know we've talked in the past and podcasts about restrictive covenants. Um, is that is that an applicable topic to to include in this discussion? Yeah, certainly we can include restrictive covenants um, in a shareholder agreement and restricted covenants is really just a fancy word for non-competes or non-solicitations, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe if you have a board member or director that resigns, um, shareholders that leave the company, you don't necessarily want them competing with similar companies, you know, or or stealing some of your employees. So we can always work those in. And, and talk about setting up, Megan, and we've got a minute or two left here, but, um, you know, Ted mentioned at the beginning, spend a little money now or maybe a lot of money later. When people are starting a business, they got a million things to do. Um, this is probably not something they think about or if they do, it's like, I'll get to it later. What does mm -hmm. it take to set this up? I mean, is this a, a big process? So they sit down and spend some time with you and you can draft everything? What, what does it really take? Yeah, we can certainly handle all the drafting. I would say the difficult part is, you know, all the 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 main actors kind of coming to agreement on what they want to put in the agreement. Um, and then it's just a matter of, you know, us kind of regrouping with the client and drafting the document. So, you know, it's not a huge effort in the beginning and it can save you a lot of time down the road. Yeah, we try to make it easy, Jim. We lay out some major issues uh, with the uh, shareholders. We encourage them to get together, talk amongst themselves, come up with a consensus, report back to us, and then we put it in writing, what they, how they want to handle these various issues. And before I let you go, what about the ability to amend these agreements then going forward? Yeah, you, it, it's like any other agreement. They can be amended, no question, but it would have to be an agreement of, of all the parties. So mm -hmm. if you have if you want to change the provisions of agreement, if you have a couple of shareholders that don't want to agree, well, then you're in an awkward situation. You're not, you're not going to be able to enforce a, an amendment on those parties that do not agree. Um, well, as we often find here, we uh, we use our time very quickly and we skim the surface. There's a lot more that I think we could cover and people may have questions. Megan, phone number, email address, website, what's the best way to get more information if they want to follow up with you on this? Um, all of the above. Uh, you can visit Laval Law. Um, website and you can find mine and Ted's um, contact information on there. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. And uh, uh, the main number, 847-705-7555. Um, give, give a call. And again, lavellelaw.com, great place to, to pick up a lot of this. So Megan Hart, and thanks for joining us for the first time. Ted McGinn, always great to have you with us. Appreciate you guys being here and look forward to talking again soon. Thanks again, Jim. Thanks, Bye. Jim.